listening to Not Good Enough, an inadequate response to inadequate responses. I'm Mitch Alexander. I'm Tom McLean. And I'm Evie. Tom Lang and Isaac are out on assignment this week and we miss our little guys so much. I miss them. You're running a skeleton crew over here. Yeah, it's just <laughs> such an empty house. Said said to Lang before, I miss his, uh, I miss the timber of his rants. <laughs> but we've got a whole bunch of uh, fun, exciting I miss stuff. The timber of Victoria's native forests, am I right, Dan Andrew? <laughs> God damn it! Just, I was about to say, oh, any dig. Straight to it. But there's like, oh, any dig, McLean. But actually, like, yeah, no, repeat that ad nauseum until you die or it gets fixed. Yes. We were way too nice to Dan Andrews last episode. We just sort of said, like, oh, he's done a good thing here. And I just, I really, really am concerned that somebody might have started listening to the episode and they're just like, yeah, not good enough. I stand with Dan too. I don't. I fucking don't. Are you sure you didn't buy one of those banners that they ordered? It's like, I stand with Dan Andrews. Why would you do that? <laughs> they made banners? Yeah. You're not allowed to go outside. Where are you putting the banner? Who are you showing it to? They're putting them over the bridge where you're not supposed to drive under at 8 o'clock anyway. Nah. Some water droplet Twitter handles are putting them up in their bedroom and you know they are. <laughs> Just big banners of Dan looking down on them at night and it's like, thank you, Dan. And they snuggle up in bed with a warm milk at 9 o'clock at night. <laughs> fucking losers. No, you're thinking of like Dan Andrews plushie now. Yeah, take that anyone who goes to bed early. <laughs> yeah, sucked in. You should be up until 2am waking up really tired and then trying to podcast. <laughs> I bet that you, you bloody early bed goer, you can't even disambiguate between Dan Andrews' fairly coherent response to the coronavirus crisis and his rampant environmental vandalism, you bloody stooge. <laughs> Oh, fucking I can't believe I managed to say that whole sentence without si- fucking up like a single word. Yeah, well done, man. <laughs> Pat on the back. Good Everyone... start to the pod. Let's go. So, oh, wait, 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 wait. Let me get her title. Oh, Catherine Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> After that entire that entire sentence, and then you call her Catherine Cramble. <laughs> Crap- <laughs> bloody Crapperin, bloody... <laughs> See, that's what I'm usually like. See, I'm giving too many wrong impressions to new listeners to the pod. Oh, that McLean, he's an articulate young man. He's not. He's a fucking idiot, but he hates Dan Andrews. And that's the thing that you've got to take away. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking weird energy. Weird energy. All right. Fuck, fuck, fuck. And very serious. Serious podcast. Serious comedy podcast. Department of Social Services Secretary Catherine Campbell is back in back on our radars. I was about to say back in the news, but I think most of this is unfortunately slid under the radar yet again. Um, we don't report this. They Catherine Campbell is um, someone from the government, but not an elected official, who has been uh, dragged in front of a bunch of Senate hearings about robo debt, the illegal scheme. It, it was found to be illegal, where the government would try to extort people that once had to use welfare and we talked about her a little while ago where she, she was the one that brought up um insufficiently legal instead of just saying the scheme was illegal she um, also pretended that like she hadn't heard the term robo debt before oh she's yeah. still doing that so it's she was so back great. at senate hearings and has is continued to pull this line of like oh, I've, oh look I've, I've i don't use the term senator and 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 to be frank i, I don't know what it means <laughs> and She's back at it again, this time getting grilled by senators about whether she or someone she knows edited her Wikipedia page to make her look better in light of all of these fucking hearings about (laughs) robo-debt. Having noted the change to your Wikipedia page, did you then investigate 
who changed the so the script? I don't really know how Wikipedia works. But you have it's an operating not, officer, Miss Campbell, yeah, who you I consulted. Do, but it's not something I kind of track very often. So you don't know who did it. Well, I don't know how you do it, Senator. It's not something I track. I did not ask anyone to change the Wikipedia page. I didn't know there was one. She is so infuriating with how obviously she is lying. She's like a child. You have to watch the video to see the eye rolling and the smug smiling. And like, you would not accept this from a six-year-old. This is the level of like, did you eat those biscuits? And her going like, oh, well, <laughs> Senator. Mm. I'm not even sure where the biscuits are kept, actually. So <laughs> I don't really know what you're asking about. The failure here, though, is that like, there isn't, much broadcast of her rolling her eyes and claiming all these things look just like there wasn't in terms of like her lying about never having heard the term robo debt so the failure point is there yeah it's it's just i mean i think part part of me thinks that maybe the reason it's not being reported on in like from mainstream publications is because that would cause some sort of riot in sectors of australia like just <laughs> just blind rage from people just exploding super saiyan style and like chunks of houses getting smashed <laughs> apart just like it is it is ooh. do you remember that jonathan swan interview with trump um a couple of weeks ago God, how could i forget how could we forget um just incredibly <laughs> incredulous australian asking donald trump plain english questions and just looking baffled every single time but one thing i remember um during the coverage of jonathan swan at that time was like a couple of uh, reporters like saying oh he's not known um, outside of his country of Australia and has the same Australian um, attitude for forthright questions. I'm like, okay, first of all, he wasn't really that well-known in Australia at all. And secondly, what forthright questioning in Australia? <laughs> like yeah. we, don't have that same, we don't have that sort of attitude towards questioning here at all. Yeah, yeah the Except- closest we have to somebody who gives it an incredulous look is friggin' Catherine Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like watching Catherine Campbell is like watching the Donald Trump uh, Swan interview, but... Donald Trump is giving, like, perfectly straightforward responses and, like, accurate answers to every question. And on the other end, he's like, hmm, what? (laughs) That doesn't seem right. Yeah, she's just, like, I hesitate. No, I don't. I don't don't hesitate to call her scum. She's scum. Um, Because what she's doing is running interference for a Senate inquiry into the government's extortion of poor people that had to use welfare at a certain point, uh, some of whom killed themselves over this. Like, just the gall to act like that in such a serious session. And, and like, look, I'm not saying she should fake it. If she doesn't actually care, good. This is good we see her colours. But the fact that she isn't in a position where she's like, damn, I should be helping as much as I can to get the truth out. And instead, she's wasting time by going, I don't actually know what RoboDebt is, actually. Like, what the fuck? How, how twisted on the inside do you have to be where you're just like, you, 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 you played a part in something as horrible as RoboDebt and still to this day you're just like, <laughs> yeah, nah, it was good actually. It's sad that we I have think- people in key positions in this government that can just feel so good about themselves after something is fucked like that. I think it's at that point you have to accept a certain level of soul selling when you get into that area of you know human services in uh, federal government and you're willing to let things pass as they are or just say oh well it wasn't called that even though robo debt is like all over the paperwork that you're issuing to people when you're giving their refunds. Yeah, I mean wasn't Catherine Campbell 
also like she's not an appointment from even the the, the current government. She was appointed under the Gillard government, and she <laughs> was the head of social services. Uh, well, not the head, but the secretary of the Department of the Human Services when Gillard kicked all the single mothers off of welfare. Yep. Like yeah, that's that's also Catherine Campbell. That's like that's important. You have to emphasize the fact that this sort of uh, soullessness is nonpartisan. <laughs> it's just it's just a good example of the banality of evil of like you know like Gillard kicked single mothers off the um you know off welfare uh the same day she delivered her misogyny speech yeah but a whole bunch of people had to like do the busy work of that and the tiny little like movements that had to take place in the bureaucracy of the government and apparently Catherine Campbell did it with fucking relish Mitch anyway. Mitch you complaining about Gillard is not a good look considering all the Gillard TikToks that you've done in the last few weeks while you've been no. in ISO. <laughs> Look, just because I've memorized that misogyny speech and know how to lip sync it perfectly doesn't mean I can't be critical of the of the person as a prime minister. Anyway, Mitch, we- you've got to do a lip sync TikTok to uh, Catherine Campbell's uh, robo debt. <laughs> Fuck, I should actually. That'll get the that'll get the kids fired up for socialism. Get the views, they love it. Um, Senator, uh, no. <laughs> um, some good news though coming out of um the Financial Times. Oddly enough, um, they published a piece recently arguing for a post-COVID recovery in the form of a guaranteed income and a robust social security system paid for by taxation. It's nice to see. It sounds like socialism to me. It's, uh, the, the headline, Reconstruction can blow post-virus dog days away. If Australia breaks sharply with pre-COVID-19 politics and policy, the economy can snap back better than the most severe downturn since the 1930s. This is like, I think we spoke about it a few weeks ago about how the sort of like the Economist and the Financial Times and the sort of like publications that look at the sort of money side of power rather than the politics side of power tend to have their finger on the pulse of the world better because they view it in that lens, which is the sort of lens at which things really operate. Yeah. Mm. Um, so seeing seeing the, the, the financial review come out with something like this is is heartening, even though, you know, I, I'm not super optimistic that, uh, you know, people are going to immediately implement socialism as, as in response to this. But uh, it's nice to see that people are at least talking about uh, implementing socialism in response to this in that sort of echelon. That's the thing, though. Those ideas, those ideas are popular with people, just like, you know, when um, the idea of a UBI first hit, like the sort of cultural um, popular understanding. It's like, oh, like... You would, if you ask people what a UBI was, like maybe about ten years ago, they'd be like, "What?" Um, like the concept has existed for a long time, but it's interesting to see like more of these socialism light policies actually infiltrating through economics um, articles and people actually getting to understand that in the first. It's creeping socialism. It's it's what <laughs> it's, economics. Get, it was last week. I'm, it was when it was what Noon and I were talking about. Whereas, like, part of it seems to be ec- like a financial considerations from these people, and another side of it is just pure ideology. Some people are just committed to capitalism like a religion, and what we're seeing is as the the, the free market like financial policies make less and less sense and we need to enact some sort of socialist policies just for economic gains all we're left with is a, is an overrepresentation of the fucking neoliberal ghouls being like no free market yeah but the the thing that I am interested in when you're saying you're not um you're not super optimistic about it i think what we are going to see is 
it's going to reveal the people in our government, the people in positions of power, who are blindly, ideologically opposed to welfare, to environmental change, because the the numbers are going to be staring them in the fucking face. You've got Financial Times talking about it. We've got all these things. We mention it every fucking week. All the different financial movers and shakers being like, please, can we go to renewable uh, energy? Can we can we start like spending government money to hire people? And you will just have these like these horrible people being like, no, I love the free market. Market. And I, I don't know how that's going to clash together. I'm hopeful that there's going to be large scale sort of overturning of like like the kicking out of people in power. But maybe they can shore up power before it gets to that point. Who the fuck knows? Yeah, I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic. I think that's the right. Yeah, <laughs> the, the sort of the split there is like. Would you like it to happen? Oh, yes, very much so. And I really hope it does. Do you think it will? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, if you want to hear about the um, the inner workings of the theory behind why the government paying their own workers to do stuff is really good, um, you can hear me ranting over war drums last week. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good time. Man, it's just, just going on a real quick tangent. But do you know what fucks me off? Is when people talk about the UBI, when they do like those little UBI trials in like other countries for like a little while, they just like pick a small segment of the population to give a UBI to, and then they see how it went. And then after it went, they're like, yeah, they were better off. Uh, can it scale to a whole country? I don't know. And then like, and let's not look into that anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. The thing that, the thing that gets me about that though, is it's just, it's the only thing it's trialing is a basic income. Not yeah. <laughs> a universal basic income. Yeah. Like, they're like, oh, we've just trialed a UBI by taking out the U. And we're, we're going to see if that works. It's like a universal basic income has to go to everybody to work. Like, the the, the, the part of the basic income, the, the basic income part of it is like, yeah, the people who are on the program have their bills paid, you know, much more easily and they can get groceries and stuff and they're not caught out. That's great. But a universal basic income has that plus workers' rights. I've said it so many times on this podcast before, but like if unemployment is less terrifying, all workers have bigger bargaining power. That, if you only have a small section of the population on a basic income, you don't get any facet of that. It doesn't touch the workers' rights stuff. That like UBI, uh, I'm not even like a big UBI, you know, dogmatist, but the, the fact that people think that a, a segment of the population trial of a basic income represents even a fraction of what the sort of u- universal part of it addresses <laughs> is, is is just baffling. And it's so obvious to me and it seems to be so impenetrable to so many people that uh, it just fucks me off every time it comes up. I'm like, a universal <laughs> basic income has three letters in that acronym and people are only ever fucking focused on the second two. And they're like, oh, well, you know, like we can't, we can't apply it's- a UBI everywhere. It's like, that's what a UBI is, you shit. The reason why, <laughs> the reason why that sort of tying themselves into not comes into place is because they can't get over that hurdle of what if some people get more than they quote unquote deserve? Like, they don't really think about the other implications, like, because they're so, like, obsessed with means testing. Like, that is the biggest hurdle for any sort of liberal democracy when we talk about, like, wide-scale aid programs is because they always have this thing in, what if someone gets it that doesn't deserve it? Like, there are so yeah. many ways to mitigate that. It's tax. Tax easily takes care of the problem. <laughs> tax t- takes care of you not getting, you know, getting more than you perhaps should in a, in a level sort of income scheme. And that's fine. Like, there's so many ways to do it. You don't have to get all sorts of, set up all these hurdles in the way to immediate assistance. I think it's also approaching it from totally the wrong direction as well of like, what happens if, you know, somebody gets more than they deserve? It's like, we should figure out 
what happens if somebody gets less than they deserve. Absolutely. Make sure that everyone's hitting that and then worry about the people who are getting more than they deserve. Because at the moment, you've got people who are starving and dying of lack of healthcare and dying because they are homeless and dying because the mental health support system's fucked. Like, there's so many ways that people can literally die because... Th- their basic needs are not being met, and we're like, oh, we, we we absolutely could meet those needs, slam dunk, just you know, turn that around in like two weeks if we really set our minds to it. But what if somebody who was comfortable got a little <laughs> bit extra money as yeah, well? I think all the people that are dying at the moment, that's a that's a price I'm willing to pay. That's a, that's the thing that's shat me about the progressives is that the even progressives make the arguments of like you you don't want the son of a billionaire getting like free education and healthcare, do you? Like, yes, I, I do. do. I do. <laughs> I want. Everyone yes. to get it. <laughs> Just frame it in terms of oxygen. You, 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 don't, you don't want a, a, a son of a billionaire to get free oxygen. Dude. Like, are you fucking crazy? <laughs> Everyone should fucking have it. I think politically as well, there is something to the fact that it is harder to take things away from people than it is to give it to them. So, like, when you know tax cuts come in or government changes legislation, it's really hard to reverse that. I reckon if any country ever actually tried a UBI and in, like, a trial period, there would be absolutely no way they could roll it back whether it was successful or not. <laughs> right, because everyone would be like, this is good. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't do it because everyone would like it. Oh, if we did that, everyone would like it so much we wouldn't be able to turn it off. Well, fucking, if everyone's <laughs> going to like it, fucking do it. You, oh. So this podcast official stance is fuck mean testing. <laughs> yes. Just yeah. give the people what they want and we'll w- worry about the rest later. <laughs> it's good news. In pretty cool news, Sydney bus drivers called off a planned strike uh, because they won it before it started. Love it. Yeah, take that Mitre 10 strikers, your two-hour strike <laughs> <Yeah>. has been <laughs> defeated. <laughs> Shout out to the Sydney bus driver. I don't even know how to offer solidarity with that because it's just it's not even solidarity. It's just like, fuck, good job. Yeah. <laughs> like, also, they cool. were asking for the most basic thing. All they just wanted right. was protective gear and, like, it just the threat of going on strike was enough to say, oh, actually, we will give you that protective gear, which was something they should have had in the first place. You know what, Evie? It wasn't even that they wanted protective gear. They wanted a review into protective gear. And the government was like, no. And then they were like, well, we'll stop working. And they went, fine. (laughs) I've seen seen a little bit of the talk around this one. It's like, I mean, sure, they won it before the strike even started, but their demands weren't very big, so whatever. It's like, their demands weren't very big, so why do they even have to threaten to strike if the demands are so... Like, they were clearly big enough that the government was like, no. So, you know, it it fucking counts. Yeah, no, 100%, kids, 100%. Good on him. So, I mean, no, I was joking before, 100% solidarity with every single one of those bus drivers who was prepared to strike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is the thing. We talked about this last week. Every single time you strike and you support strikers, it gets easier for workers next time. I refuse to believe that all of the other protests and strikes that have happened in the last few months had no impact on this. Oh, Like, absolutely. of course they fucking did. Bus drivers were going like, we will strike. And the government's looked at all the rest of the successful strikes that have happened to me like I should point out that train uh, train and bus uh, and public transport unions are usually quite stronger so when they threaten to strike it's because it's a huge public utility the threat is large and Mm. the consequences are large but I hope that does like make people feel like oh well if they can like threaten to strike and um, you know their boss immediately follows through on their threats um, and, you know, does everything that they ask for, that means that I can sort of feel a bit more power in threatening to strike in the same way. 
regardless of being in public transport or not. For sure. I also like this quote from the union secretary, David Babineau, in response to this uh, success. He says, bus drivers in the union will remain vigilant and we hope for a more constructive response from government to any future concerns so that we can avoid reaching this point again. (laughs) Oh, that rules. That is a (laughs) baller, baller statement. I love it. Corners investigation has revealed that doctors warned the DHHS about infection risks in the hotel quarantine program and were ignored. The hotel quarantine program is, of course, the reason for Victoria's current outbreak. And the stats show that it's fine to say that it's the reason. Like, so many of the cases are traceable back to the quarantine program. And it turns out that, yeah, they were warned about that and they didn't but, do like, anything. Doctors warned them. And we're ignored. Who the f- who else are you fucking listening to during a pandemic about infection risks? It's costs. It's costs. That's all it is. Like they they wanted to do it, and that that stems to the whole sort of quarantine scheme is that they were doing it as cheaply as possible and cutting as much corners as possible. It's just a coincidence that New South Wales is actually doing better and they've got a different health system because they could have easily gone the same way. It's just a case of they've cut corners in a in an area where the disease could have been spread and this is the consequence. I mean, the same place, the same thing can apply for um, the aged care system in Victoria as well. This is a system that's been in decline for like decades now and people have constantly, like the Royal Commission repeated multiple times, a disaster, we're on the precipice of a disaster and now we're here. Yeah, it's... Some like Mitch, you, you were like, doctors warned them and they didn't do anything, but it's like you look at some of the stuff that they were warned about and you're like... You don't need a doctor to know that that's a ridiculous <laughs> yeah. idea. Like this, th- one of these quotes. Often, the patients. This is the patients who were getting tested uh, because they were obviously a part of a quarantine risk. Often, they could be transferred in the appropriate ambulance, but would need to find their own way back to the hotels themselves, and that would involve either a taxi, an Uber, or prevailing upon family members. <laughs> what? What? Yeah, I know. D- if they're in it's quarantine, baffling. don't make them get a fucking taxi. Don't make them get in a carpool. What are you doing? That's so obvious. <laughs> I I just, yeah, I think Evie's right because I, I refuse to believe that that is an honest mistake. That is no, 100% someone looking at a whiteboard and being like, where can where can the costs come from? Where can we cut down on expenses? I honestly think that even that's giving them too much credit. I think that it is <laughs> like, I think the idea that it made it to a whiteboard for somebody to think about <laughs> is... Like, be, I, I don't even believe that. I reckon they're just like, oh, man, we've got to get some people around. I don't know if I can get them an ambulance to take them to the thing. Is it? It's five. Let's go. <laughs> Knock off. <laughs> they sacrifice the need to do it well, a very quick turnaround over the cost of, like, you know, doing it very cheaply. And, I mean, it could probably take, like, a couple of days extra in terms of, like, getting together resources to do it well and making sure people had better transport and making sure people had better PPE. But, of course, they're going to take the quickest and cheapest possible route. Yeah. And they've also got, like, photos coming out of, like, the the security guards just, like, having a nap in the hallway. And they've, like, said, you know, oh, yeah, those guards were sacked after the photos were reported. But, like... What? Fucking... (laughs) Let's not blame the guards. Let's look at the security company. This, This one of the guards is, like... They didn't get any infection control training at all before being posted in the hotel quarantine. He says, all I know about COVID is from television, not from the security company. No training whatsoever. Oh, I saw people talking about that, but they were doing it from like the culture wars point of view, which is like, well, he got all this diversity training, but he didn't have any COVID training. I'm like, 
I mean, both those things are important, but also like, let's not bring the diversity training into it. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't one or the other. Yeah, it wasn't like, they were, like the doctors were like, oh, he needs to know about infectious disease control, but also he needs to be culturally sensitive to other religions that might be... What do we do? It's like, no, they just didn't yeah. give him one. Oh, DHHS has only given us one VHS to bloody record <laughs> the training onto, and we've got friggin' an hour of diversity and an hour of an infection control. What are we going? Ah, oh, well, let's just, it's five, let's go home. Fucking <laughs> hell. Ah. It just showed the security guards' old episodes of Brum instead. Like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Also, something that we didn't report on, report, we didn't talk shit about last week, was that our depraved, useless, horrible federal government are reopening Christmas Island at a cost of $55 million over the next six months to house uh, people in immigration detention centres to try and ease the burden of them not catching COVID, which is just... They 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 put they're reopening offshore detention at exorbitant costs, probably with Circo, who we've mentioned a bunch of times before, the most evil corporation on earth, like that like mustache twirling levels of evil from Circo. But they're saying that like well, there's 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 oh, this burden on the detention center facilities and the resources, and we've got to send them back over there because we can't risk them getting COVID. And it's like fuck me, if if only there was another way of having less people be a burden on the resources for the yeah, detention centres. what would it be like to have people who are, like, part of society but didn't cost $55 million? Like, fuck, I can't even imagine what that would be. It's like, just, it's I, fucked. It's, like, so it's a the, deliberately spiteful move, I feel, by Peter Dutton. Yeah, like, it's just border force looking down the barrel of the camera and being like, I know, do you have any idea how expensive it is to hold refugees? Like... Let them out then. Oh, nah, nah. We've got to open up Christmas Island again. That's what's next for $55 million we're going to spend on this thing. Just, like, let them go. The Billawilla family's there. They have, like, they have a, a place in the community already. They're, they're just being held punitively. There's no reason to hold, really, I'm just going to say, any of them. Like, we, we have an obligation to accept refugees into Australia, which we currently fail all over the place. We've copped condemnation from the like UN over our human rights abuses in this, and they're still like, "Oh, we better open up another place because it's it's pretty hard." Like, it's just it's way easier if you let them out. I mean, the Billowila family were making this country money. It's not even that they cost less to have in Australia. Even if you want to make a cold, calculated, economic ruling on this as an issue. To have these people out in the community means that they're paying GST on their products. They're getting jobs. Hopefully, we're in a fucking. Nah, I hate this, Mitch. Don't. don't. (laughs) (laughs) I I I know that you prefaced it with even if you want to make a cold argument for, but I don't want to make that argument. But (laughs) McLean, so (laughs) many of our small children, so many they are in prison. But so many of our listeners are young liberal voters, McLean. (laughs) We've got to reach them. I'm speaking on their language. Yeah, anyone listening to this podcast understands that you shouldn't make that fucking argument. It's disgusting. They're humans. I try not to get into like sort of hyperbolic. Uh, arguments about who's like really evil and spiteful in in government because I feel like to be in government you have to have a level of evil anyway inside (laughs) of you but it really like it pains me so much to think about how this young family just wants to go back home and the community wants them so and and Peter Dutton is just like absolutely the fuck not over my dead body like 
That's wow. that's the thing. I know that there are people out there who who listen to that sentence that you just said and have this thought of like evil though. Isn't that a bit of a strong word, Evie? Yes. Like I, it's a strong word, and I mean it. <laughs> I, I, I've had that before. Like I talk about things being evil, and people are like, oh, I don't know about evil though. It's like, oh, they're they're holding a child in prison for just political gain because the, obviously the child has. I've got to say this: the child has committed no crime. The child has committed no crime, but they're put. In prison, and this is also true of all the freaking ten and twelve-year-olds that we have in prison. Anyway, look, this is just—we we put a lot of children in prison in Australia, and people still go, "I don't know about evil." When you say that that's evil, it's evil. We re- you're like, "I don't know about evil." You got to really think about like what evil is. We recently had a campaign where it was like, "Hey, can we like raise the age of like the children that we can send to prison and prosecute?" And the government went, "No." Like we're, it, it's evil. When people say, yeah, is it, it evil's a strong word. Yes, it is. Also, yeah. hate is a strong word. I fucking hate Peter Dutton. <laughs> Viscerally. Yeah. He sets my atoms on fire. He is one of the most despicable, hollow, craven pieces of shit to ever walk this planet. He should dissolve into mud. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. No, that's, not how that, that's not how that works. <laughs> <laughs> Our friends at BHP have announced that they are going to sell off uh, their thermal coal mines within the next two years. Great news. Hey. I think. No more thermal coal for BHP. They're out. And uh, does that mean that there's going to be less thermal coal? Well, no. Because, like I said, they're selling it. They're not shutting it down. So, you know, like, fine from BHP. Like, okay, cool. You're going to just shuffle some money. You're going to accept a bunch of money. To not shut down a coal mine is what I'm hearing. Two two different thoughts, uh, trains of thought for me were that either like a subsidiary of BHP is going to buy it off them so they can look like they're more green, but it's just like, yeah, uh, PHB has bought up all of our thermal coal mines. Um, or the other thing that I was thinking of is that it's just essentially going to be like the Adani situation in Queensland where globally speaking... Adani is a fucking joke. No one likes dealing with them. They've been investigated a whole bunch of times. They're corrupt as shit and they are bad for the environment. They're bad wherever they set their minds up. <laughs> and yet the, the Australian government's still like, yeah, no, we'll work with them. Fuck, cool, that's great. And so BHP are just going to sell it off to really shit, terrible companies that might, in the short term at least, actually make things a bit worse. My hope is that BHP are looking at, like we, just, like we said earlier, they're looking at the financial cost and being like, nah, we got to get out of fossil fuel. It's not working. But they should be shutting it down. But instead they have to go, yeah, but we have to make some money off of these long-term investments. So let's sell them to shitty operators that don't care about the environment that (laughs) will try to extract as much wealth from the environment as possible. My really dark thought about it Let's sell off our coal mines. And who are we going to sell them to? Uh, Whoever's buying coal mines in 2020. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, so my really dark thought about it is early on in this podcast, we talked about how uh, gas is like one of our biggest exports, but we get fuck all money about it because we have this really convoluted selling scheme for it where we sell it for basically nothing to other countries and yet we purchase it back at high rates. Um, I, I just feel like a similar scenario is going to play out here. Like uh, where like foreign foreign nationals are just going to buy up all our coal mines anyway and so we're just paying other countries to like loot us, which is fantastic. Well, this, is, like this, this news is actually not even Australians. This is just BHP globally is selling off its thermal coal. All right, but like it, you'll still have something like Adani, which is basically raiding our natural resources for fun and profit. 
Oh, sure. Yeah. Just, just, yeah. Just, I mean, the Australian government is just a sort of like very large scale money laundering scheme. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was yeah. thinking about the whole like selling, like selling gas for nothing and buying it back and just Angus Taylor as that Tim and Eric, like it's free real estate. Like, just, <laughs> that level of just utter stupidity and gronkness, but just what a good financial system we have where that can make sense. But, um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, just in case you thought that uh, this was a sign that BHP are turning into angel investors that will save us from ourselves in the coming climate apocalypse, um, there was a tweet from Elise Morgan, which I'll just I'll just I'll just read verbatim. Mining giant BHP has refused to guarantee it won't destroy 40 sacred sites that stand in the way of a major mine expansion in the Pilbara. Fuck you, BHP, and every single one of the decrepit shits that works for you. But there's an equal partitioning of blame here because I would love to know what Ken Wyatt, who's um, the uh, Minister for Indigenous Australians, uh, he apparently knew about the last um, sacred site that got blown up by a mining company. So what does he know about these 40 sites uh, that BHP has said that they're they're not promising to destroy them? Has he already received enough intel about this? Imagine saying that. After everything that happened, imagine imagine refusing to guarantee. Like, are you going to try to save these sites? Oh, look, I I can't say either way. Well, then you're going to do it. Yeah. Like, you have yeah, to rule it out. Otherwise, you were going to do it because you have a fucking proven, proven track record of doing it. I'm just going to take this opportunity to sort of step in and say that Daniel Andrews' Labor government is going to blow up the Jabberung <laughs> birthing trees to make way for a highway. And it's the fucking same thing. Absolutely. Just for anyone out there who doesn't is who's not yet convinced that I fucking hate Daniel Andrews, <laughs> he's fucking BHP in a person because he's going to destroy Aboriginal sacred sites to make way for his fucking money making bullshit. And fuck needs, you. And that fight has you. been going fuck for you. years. I don't stand with Dan ever. He's, he's making way for a new highway with which uh, banners saying "I stand with Dan" can be flung high and wide. <laughs> Did Dan Andrews weigh in on the Duke and Gorge situation? I want to look this up. <laughs> this is why we need Isaac. <laughs> Isaac. Isaac. <laughs> I don't know. I Look, I, I've just done a Google. I didn't find anything because we're in the middle of recording. So I can't say whether Dan Andrews weighed in on the Duke and Gorge situation. But if he did, he's a fucking hypocrite. <laughs> and if he didn't, he's still a disgrace. <laughs> don't stand with Dan. If Dan Andrews is standing, you can bury me in the ground. <laughs> <laughs> that barely makes sense. You're just angry. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> hey guys, let's talk about some of our um, on-field reporting. What have you guys been up to this week? <laughs> I want to hear about this. I'm really eager to hear about this, actually. Oh no! We're just gonna fall ass backwards into accidental journalism. Like, oh no! <laughs> I, I'm. I'm, I'm too mad going into this segment. I can't do it. <laughs> Not do it. So uh, on Wednesday, August 19th, uh, the Australian Labor Party held a virtual town hall hosted by Jed Carney and uh, featuring Terry Butler, who's the uh, Shadow Minister for the Environment, and Mark Butler, who is the Shadow Minister for Climate. Uh, they hosted a virtual town hall about climate change, and I attended that, and I was driven permanently insane. And that's why I'm having a tough time on this podcast today. So there's a ah, there's a thing. So obviously they had the Minister for the Environment and the Minister for Climate at the virtual town hall about climate, but notably not present was the Shadow Minister for Resources, who is Joel Fitzgibbon, who is an active climate denialist. So it's sort of difficult to sort of engage with it seriously because it's like, oh, you guys are, you know, there for the environment and the climate, but not for resources. And the resources is fully 100% committed to continuing to dig up a bunch of coal and burn it. So 
it, it, it's, it's a little bit of cross-purposes sort of thing. The, the town hall itself, I will say, was fine. Like, I, 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 I think that Terry Butler and Mark Butler and Jed Carney are all people who are earnest in their stance of doing something about the climate crisis. I, I, I think that all, of, all three of them are genuine in their desire to achieve you know, renewable energy and, and less thermal coal and, and, and that sort of thing. But the thing that drove me crazy about it is the fact that they are still talking about these issues completely dispassionately and as though they are a problem for future generations to deal with. Mark Butler had a point at one uh, bit where he was like, oh yeah, like, you know, my, my teenager is always, you know, giving me shit about, he didn't say give me shit, but, you know, give me shit about environment stuff. And, uh, you know, they, they, they mentioned like, oh, we're letting down future generations without our, our current failure to act on the climate crisis. And I, <laughs> future generations it's the generation this one this is the yeah it's were right you not now. around in australia in january when the country was on fire have you not read any news in the last i'm just gonna say 20 fucking years like <laughs> the climate crisis is here you need to be talking about it as though it is a present thing because it is it's already got a body count in like greater than COVID. like it's it's a massive contemporary right now issue and there's still people being like yeah you know this is a thing that we're taking really seriously like you need to be propelled by the fear of your own death by this because that's what's at fucking stake i'm starting to think there's like there's some truth to the idea that our collective memory is just getting shorter and shorter every time because i when i think about like there's more anti-vaxxers now because there's a collective memory loss of what it's like to suffer um prior to COVID, obviously, there's a, there was a memory loss of what it's like to suffer under a pandemic and have, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people die or be monstrously chronically ill. And that's happening right now. But because there's, like, you know, the majority of people alive right now in, you know, America and Australia have not seen, like, family members uh, become seriously ill thanks to a pandemic. So they don't have the lived experience or the collective memory to remember what it was like. And so they don't think it can apply this time. And I think the same thing is here. Like when it comes to climate change, it's like like our collective memory has somehow forgot all about the bushfires that happened six months ago in talking about this and like the urgency of it happening right now. Yeah, I think there's it's- also – I think that's right. I think there's also a thing where – I've said it before, that the Labor Party is the party for people who – think that things are fundamentally okay yeah. and that, that like that the rules just need to be tweaked around the edges a little bit. Yeah. And I think that that's true when talking about the climate crisis as well. Like I think that there is a real thing where a lot of people's brains are sort of wrapped in glad wrap and if you sort of like throw <laughs> climate information at them, it just sort of slides off and leaves no residue whatsoever. I actually asked this question about like, are you like are you afraid for your own life when you think about the climate crisis because you've been talking about this very dispassionately and very sort of abstractly? Do you find it a real present issue? And unfortunately, while my question did get picked up, it got picked up right at the end of the thing. And so Jed Carney was like, oh, look, we've got this last question in. I'm just going to summarize it for time. But it's about hope. And No, it's not. <laughs> basically rephrase my question as like, you know, uh, how do you how do you stay positive when you're working at, like on 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 climate stuff? And it, I, I, you know, I, I've said how it drove me crazy that that people like don't you know think that the climate crisis is a contemporary thing. But that that is the thing of like you know you say like, hey, 
people are dying now. Disasters are happening now. And they're like, yeah, it's about hope. How do you stay positive? That's not what I fucking asked. <laughs> yeah, I need to know that you're human. I need to know yeah. where you're at. This is, this is the thing for me is that I think that these people, when you say that they are genuine, I think that they probably are, but I think they've just been in federal politics for so long that they don't know how to, like everything gets filtered through the lens of I'm a politician, I do political stuff. And so that inevitably gets like changed and morphed into um, I've got to make sure Australia is strong for future generations. It's like it, they just glitch out where it's like, yeah, I could I could die from like intense heat stroke. I could die from future generations require us to. It's like no, you've lost no. sight. I need someone. I'm I want to vote for someone who's like, hey, I'm terrified as well. I'm gonna do what I can. Do you want to? I I don't want to die. Do you think also? Do you think like she maybe she perceived your question to be sort of like doomery? Like, oh yeah, well I have no hope and therefore what's the point? Which is of course not what you said. But I think of it as like what you said as a you know, how do you sleep at night? How do you <laughs> how, how do you not feel afraid for your life? Or like what what like don't you have that sort of existential dread of what will happen to me if I don't do my part to, you know, help solve this yeah. problem? I, I, I don't even think it's like about how you sleep at night stuff. Like I, I was having a a bit of a meltdown in the in the Zoom chat while she'd rephrased it, being like, "That's not what I asked." <laughs> um, the 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 thing that I really like, the thing that I want to believe that our politicians have a personal fear of death regarding climate change for is not like, you know, just how do you sleep at night? Are you a person? But if you're motivated by the fear of your own death, the sort of level of drastic action that you're willing to take is much, much, much higher yeah. than if yeah. you're motivated by the fear of letting down future generations. I said that in the chat. Like, you know, I, I'm not talking about staying positive. I'm talking about taking drastic action. And a, again, I, I do want to stress that I, I honestly believe that these people are earnest in wanting to address these things but like they'd been talking about like some climate progress that they'd made in like securing funding for blah 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 and jed saw my question about like it, it's it's you know it's about the sort of drastic action that she'll take and she'll be like she said something like oh and and you know regarding drastic actions i i think you can see from the stuff that we've been discussing tonight that that we have been taking some pretty drastic actions and that is madness to me because no no when i'm talking about drastic action i'm not talking about securing funding for new renewables <laughs> in whatever i'm talking about like poisoning a rival mp's wife and then agreeing to a pair and then filching on that pair at the last second to push some climate legislation through like i'm talking about yeah. shit that's like you are in parliament with a bomb vest attached to you that <laughs> yeah. you woke up with and you don't fucking know how it got there and you've got some you know stranger in an earpiece saying hey just stop burning fossil fuels and nobody has to get hurt like what do you fucking do in that situation none of this like oh we secured funding for blah 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 you're gonna die you should act like you're gonna die not like oh your freaking great 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 grandson's gonna be sad like fuck you <laughs> yeah. i can't stress enough how like 
genuinely perspective altering your um, heuristic of looking at labor, the Labor Party and Labor voters as people who think the system is both good and fundamentally working. It just needs some editing. It frames everything so perfectly because then they're not looking at like, oh, fuck, everything's busted. Capitalism's not working because of capitalism. They're just like, oh, capitalism's not working because we didn't secure the right funding for a different initiative from a different think tank or some shit like that. And the same thing happens then with climate change stuff. It's like, yeah, this does suck. We, we've got to try and fix uh, the problems with climate change while still having all these coal miners voting for us in Queensland. These coal mines are yeah. important, so we'll just... Like, no, you fucking <laughs> idiots. A thing that I keep coming back to is um, Greta Thunberg's, you know, famous quote about like, I need you to act as though your house is on fire because it is. And that's a very resonant quote. And, it, you know, it's, it's got some good imagery to it. And everyone's like, mm, yes, absolutely, Greta Thunberg. We do need to act as though our house is on fire because it is. Like that, and I'm not even disagreeing with that. that that's absolutely the case. But I think that people need to do a little bit of work in sort of picking apart what acting like your house is on fire <laughs> means because it doesn't mean like oh we gotta <laughs> we gotta feel a sense of urgency oh we gotta take this seriously it means you have to be like fuck yes i'm gonna smash this window if i have to like you know i don't have time to think about like oh i make sure i gather up all my valuables that sort of thing it's like if you can't find your cat you get out of there anyway sorry cat the like house. i have a cat myself <laughs> but like that's if your house is on fire you don't stop to think, like, you know, make sure that you can preserve <laughs> as much as you can and, like, oh, that window's going to be expensive to replace later. No, if that's the way out, smash the fucking window. The house is on Break fire. Break stuff. The house is on fire, so I'm going to call together the members of my family to vote on how best to exit this burning house, making sure it's <laughs> cost-effective. I'm going to budget for any windows smashed now so we can rebuild the house later on. My house is on fire, so I'm going to gather together all my... Uh, uh, closest family and friends to decide on whether I put batteries into the fire alarm again. <laughs> well, it would be a shame if your kids had to live in a burning house. And we don't want to saddle those children with the cost of replacing the windows. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. And this is the thing as well. I, I attended one of these. Well, we both did um, a month or so ago now as well on slightly unrelated stuff. But these town halls for me are really interesting to see that to, to see what makes a politician, especially a federal politician in one of the two big parties, is that they are genuinely nice as well and they are engaging and they can sort of make you feel like, oh, yeah, no, don't ask my question properly. That's all good. You have to be really committed to pinning them down on what you want to talk about because they are all really fucking good at being like, hey, friend, come on in. Let's change the terms of debate. You want some tea? You want some biscuits? I'm not going to address that. You want some, some milk? Like... They're genuinely really good at politicking their way out of fucking issues. And that's why we need collective action. Like more people attending these town halls, asking these sort of questions, journalists doing the bare fucking minimum. Um, th th these are the type of individual actions that you can take. Is just start hammering politicians more. It's like, hey, you scared of dying? I'm scared of dying. <laughs> do you know what people who are scared of dying will fucking do? It's in your interest to make sure we're not scared of dying. This is a no doomerism podcast, and I think that this is part of the point that I'm trying to make here is if you're feeling really futile and scared about the future and the climate crisis, right, like, you can take the doomerism aspect and just be like, well, I guess that means everything's doomed and I'm going to wallow in despair <laughs> for the rest of my life. Or you can try and think about ways to weaponize that despair and say... I am motivated by the fear of my own death. I don't want to be making a podcast. I don't want to be spending my Wednesday nights at fucking Labour 
fucking town halls. <laughs> I want to play video games and I want to hang out with my wife. And that those are my two driving goals in life. <laughs> Yet here I am because I don't want to die. And I might be like, you know, oh, why aren't I, you know, assembling more Molotov cocktails? Like surely <laughs> that is if you're motivated by your own death. But I am also someone who I genuinely don't think that violence is the sort of way forward for that. That uh, like I I I don't know what else I can do, but I I think that you know if if there's me motivated by my own death, like thinking like oh maybe I should be violent, uh, I don't think that that stacks up. But I think that if Jed Carney was motivated by the fear of her own death, she has actual power. She can do stuff, and I don't mean like oh she has a vote in parliament. I mean she has a massive platform. She has the ability to. Do fucking shenanigans in Parliament. You can get in the news by like you know just like read something crazy out fucking into the into the handset. Like just call Fitzgibbon a cunt on <laughs> into the handset. Just say you denialist cunt. We cannot be building more thermal coal, or everyone in the world will die. Do you understand the science at all? Just like that verbatim. Scream that. Maybe that'll get something done instead of being like, well, well, you know, we've got to show party solidarity. Yeah, no bullshit. Blah, blah, blah. This is the thing is that the fucking right wingers already do this. We already have Scott Morrison bringing in fucking lumps of coal to make a like a make a political point. Fucking Pauline Hanson puts a fucking a burqa on and makes some sort of political point. And the the leftlies look at that and go, hmm, that's proof that these sort of things shouldn't be done at all. It's like, no, it's proof that you should do it because it gets fucking coverage. Yeah, and also, like, oh, you know, like, oh, the, the, that's the right wing, though. Like, the Labour Party, I, I'm, you know, I've got to work to change things from the inside. Joel Fitzgibbon gave an exclusive interview <laughs> on Sky News where he threatened to roll fucking Anthony Albanese if he capitulated on climate. Like, people in your party are doing this as well. Yeah. Act up. Yeah, exactly. No, I 100% uh, support the call Joel Fitzgibbon a cunt campaign from Not Good Enough. 100%. <sighs> <laughs> It's yeah, it's fucking it's fucking infuriating. I I I don't know. I hope things get more extreme in the next five years. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> There's a hope that you can take to the bank because the climate crisis is here, and things will get more extreme in the next five years. So we got a couple of computer nerd stuff this week. Yeah, <laughs> we're just doing a hard tonal shift in the rest <laughs> of the episode. Computer nerd stuff. Okay, first nerd thing on the agenda is more a thing that's not a thing that was on the agenda because it was pushed through super hard before Parliament closed at the end of last year. Um, It was our anti-encryption legislation um, where everyone was like, everyone needs to be safe before Christmas and we really need to pass these laws that breaks through all your privacy rights. And it turns out that the ASIO and AFP have not used them at all. So. In the entire time. So so just to be clear, they ran a line of we have to 100% get this through because it's of dire importance. And then it just got through and sat there and gathered dust. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Just like <laughs> massive wailing and gnashing of teeth. The terrorists are going to attack us imminently. As long as people can still have encrypted communications in their phones, Australia's doomed. We need it today. And then they were like... All right, and then it didn't get used. This is, this is just, it was really annoying as well because Labor was like, we have some concerns about the encryption legislation and the Liberal parties were like, yeah, well, look, we've got to get it through now because of the imminent threat and then we can we can sort out the details later. 
and Labour was like, okie dokie. And they, <laughs> they, they sent it through. And then Labour was like, so do you want to talk about those details? And the Liberals were like, no. And they were like, oh. No, and Labour was like, okie dokie. <laughs> oh, but you promised. <laughs> Just fucking, yeah, okay, that sounds real good. And this comes at the same time um, that Peter Dutton's confirmed um, that the Australian Signals Directorate, which is uh, our spook shit in Australia. The Australian Signals Director will for the first time be able to identify terrorism suspects on home soil. Um, and that includes capability for them to help law enforcement agencies identify and disrupt serious criminal activity. So this this is part of the $1.6 billion cyber strategy scheme that Dutton has just recently announced as well. So it's targeting specifically Australians. I can't see so how this will go wrong. Spying on our own citizens. Rad. Yeah, it, it's... What what you need to understand though Sounds like we'll get some listeners on our podcast. Hooray. <laughs> what you need to understand though, it isn't just Australians specifically who are being targeted by this. And I go on about this quite a bit in like the group chat as well, whenever there's some sort of cybersecurity strategy. It's just that Australia we're a testing ground for this kind of stuff through ASIO, um, through the Signals Directorate, and also through the Five Eyes. Now, what is the Five Eyes? The Five Eyes is our intelligence network um, with a couple of other countries, including the UK, the Canada, and the US. Um, and this isn't, like, it's not without precedent. All the members of the Five Eyes have been spying on each other's citizens for the last however many years, but it's increased in occurrence and people talking about it for the, over the last five years. Edwin Snowden talked about it as well um, in his leaks on the NSA. And Australia is like a really good testing ground for these sort of enroachments of privacy. So when this gets passed with no opposition, like all the Five Eyes neighbours are going to be asking for all this intel as well. They want to spy through us. We're the back door. I like, oh boy. I like the idea like we're a good testing ground. Yeah, because we've got a fucking useless opposition party. They're just like, okay. We've got a useless opposition and also we're the nation of people who love to be cops. <laughs> yeah. And, and just for one more um, thing in terms of uh, Australia being a testing ground, uh, this week we found out that uh, the Victorian police has an algorithm where they uh, detect possible youth offenders. This this is insane to me. I'm just going to read it out verbatim, um, the statement from uh, Victorian police. A senior local officer explained, we can run that tool now and it will tell us, like the kid might be 15, it tells how many crimes he is going to commit before he's 21 based on that. And it is a 95% Fuck. accuracy. It has been Fuck tested. That, that's a lie. That's like a straight up lie. This is like... <laughs> he was watching okay. Minority Report. He was like, damn, that tech's hot. It, it's, it's amazing to me that a senior officer is saying this because it's either one of two things. He sincerely believes it and thinks like an algorithm is going to predict criminals for him or he knows that there's no such thing as possible. You can't predict a crime based on who a person, like just on the data that's available to you and is, you know, straight up lying and talking about it. That, I mean, but legit, how much of it is like self-fulfilling prophecies? Like everyone we tested it on when they were 15, 16, it told us that they would be committing crimes and then we started harassing them and then it turns out we eventually got a reason to arrest them for some crimes. No shit. It's the reason why um, in the US, one of the biggest sort of um, actions that was done by socialist organisations was to help people fix their brake lights because it was yeah. the, the data shows oh, that so God, many cars yeah. have been pulled over because, you know, supposed problems with brake lights and people have been shot at. 
I'll give one more direct quote from um, the young people who participated in this particular study and this use of this algorithm. Um, the quote is, young people who participated in this study said they were often asked about their age, identity and friendship networks and required to account for their presence where they were gathering in public places, using public transport or simply walking along the street. One young person reported being told by an officer, you're going to be in the system forever reflecting the data-driven nature of risk-based policing. Another participant said they're trying to judge you on your past. It's the grimmest shit. It's so, like, yeah, I, I, you should just never trust an algorithm. I say this as a tech expert. Just never, ever trust an algorithm. It's, it's like the same things that think that, like, the, you know, oh, you're scrolling Instagram, I'm going to show you an ad about, I don't know, fishing supplies or whatever. I used to get a bunch of ads for like a sort of survivalist like gun <laughs> show thing because I bought a backpack from an online store once. And oh man, this guy, he friggin' loves survivalist shit. And the thing with like, I bought a mattress and then I got ads for mattresses for months because I guess the algorithm was like, ah, oh, a mattress collector. Like I bought one. I don't need another one. It's the last thing you should be. So these algorithms, it's exactly the same code that's deciding which kids go to prison. That that's every anytime you think about like oh you know they've got an algorithm that sorts that out. Think about the quality of ads that you receive that are sort of targeted at you and the sort of crazy shit that your social media thinks that you're interested in. It's the same thing. The algorithms are always wrong. And these are the same um, police and um, organisations that are interested in using Clearview, which we've talked about in previous episodes. Uh, like they they only want to use these algorithm driven technologies as a basis for cutting cost and whether they believe it works or not comes second to that. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Anyway, if you want to read more about this um, particular new threatening vein of racial profiling in the police, um, (laughs) the Saturday paper has a lot of coverage about it uh, in a recent um, article as well. Well, that sounds like we're doing shout outs for this week. Shoutouts for this week. Um, <laughs> Evie, you were on the No Turning Back podcast this week. I was. It was so much fun. Um, I talked about a Green New Deal and a jobs guarantee, and it was a lot of fun ranting about, I guess, like a Marxism vibe. I didn't really go into any theory myself. Um, <gasps> <laughs> sorry, Mitch. <laughs> What's the fucking point then? No. <laughs> I really liked that episode, I've got to say. Uh, the, the, the people at uh, No Turning Back are really good. And that, uh, the, uh, uh, that episode specifically had a really good, like, things can be better energy to it. And I, I think that we haven't really conveyed that much of that energy in this particular episode. <laughs> Sorry, dear listener, to be a little bit sort of grim and angry, but I've had a grim and angry week. Um, but I would say that, uh, that No Turning Back is a, a nice, uh, you know, uh, chaser, if you've just finished this episode, uh, pick up No Turning Back next and uh, just have a, a nice listen to some people talking about the way that things can be good. It was yeah. a really thoughtful conversation, I thought. Um, just, you know, thinking about ways in which we could build the world to be better for ourselves and for everyone around us. Hey, you listened to another episode of Not Good Enough. <laughs> Don't bother getting in touch. We're not in the mood this week. <laughs> If you really want to, you can get in touch. Not good pod at protonmail.com. We don't check the social media. Don't bother there. <laughs> the only time we're on social media is to monitor the bloody <laughs> dramas <laughs> that are going down. And... <sighs>
We don't want to keep that one, do we? Or do we? No, I love it. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a mood. <laughs> Not Good Enough was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded.